Hello and welcome to The Planet Today, where we cover the latest in climate change, wildlife conservation, renewable energy, and environmental policy. Today's Friday, July 7th, 2023. I'm your host, Matt Norton, here by myself today because we're about to air my interview with Dr. Doug Tallamy. Before we get into things, here's a quick note from one of our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by KitCaster. KitCaster books you on top podcasts. How do funded startup founders attract prospects and talent? Podcast interviews. How do entrepreneurs with exits find new deals? Podcast interviews. How do C-suite execs differentiate in crowded markets? Podcast interviews. KitCaster books you on top podcasts. Click the link in the show notes for a special offer. Celebrate good conversation. Today on TPT, we are joined by Dr. Doug Tallamy. Dr. Tallamy is a professor in the University of Delaware's Department of Entomology and Wildlife Ecology. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention that our paths did cross once in spring of 2018 during my first year of grad school at UD when he was a guest speaker for a class I was taking. Doug's book, Nature's Best Hope, Young Readers Edition, How You Can Save the World in Your Own Yard, was released on April 4th and is an adaption of his New York Times bestseller, Nature's Best Hope. It aims to inspire kids to join the homegrown national park movement and learn how to protect the planet through small and approachable acts of conservation at home. Dr. Talamy, welcome to the planet today. It is a pleasure to be here. Thank you. So I want to take this back to the beginning. What first got you interested in environmentalism? I was born that way. Uh, and I'm not kidding about that. I've got a brother and a sister. We all were in the same house, the same place, same background. They were not born that way, and I was. So it really, from the earliest days... I was interested in the outdoors and what was happening out there, what was moving around. Gotcha. So I want to then take that into your career path a little bit. And what led you to the University of Delaware? And maybe what are some of the areas that your classes focus on? Well, I, I went to Allegheny College and it was a biology major. And uh, I had a course in entomology. <clears throat> so I ended up in graduate school in entomology and ended up with uh, you know, I got my master's and a PhD and then a postdoc at University of Iowa. And, you know, I'm a baby boomer and a lot of baby boomers were graduating with with PhDs back then. So I applied to a lot of jobs. And the only interview I got was the University of Delaware. So <laughs> I've had one interview in my life and I absolutely took it. So this is my 42nd year. Awesome. It's a, it's a great place to be. So I, you know, I'm very biased when I say that, of course. <laughs> So on our show, we focus a lot on conservation and more what is being lost. How can we prevent more of that from happening? Um, my question is, why is restoring what has been lost also necessary? Well, we have parks and we have preserves and we are in the sixth great extinction event. So obviously they are not enough to prevent the biodiversity crisis that we now have in this planet. And that means we've got to start practicing conservation outside of parks and preserves. Uh, and what's outside of parks and preserves? It's private property. 78% of this country is privately owned and 85% east of the Mississippi is privately owned. So if we don't practice conservation on private property, we're going to fail. 
And by the way, we cannot afford to fail. You know, losing nature is not an option here. It is, that is what keeps us alive on planet Earth. So it's serious stuff. It's every bit as serious as, as climate change. The good news is that it enlists an army of private property owners, millions of people who can practice conservation in effective ways right in the land they already own. We don't need legislation. We don't need the UN to pass a resolution. You can go outside tomorrow and, well, not tomorrow, in the fall, plant an oak tree and you'll make a huge contribution to, to uh, the local environment. Um, so that's, that's what I really love about this movement is that it empowers local people. Most people, you know, they recognize the planet's got serious problems, but they'll say, well, what can one person do? One person can modify the, the property they own. Uh, that's all. So don't worry about the whole planet's problem. Just worry about the piece of the earth you can influence. And if you don't own property, help somebody who does. Uh, volunteer for a land conservancy or a park or preserve. They are all underfunded. They are all understaffed and they will love you as a volunteer. So there is something that everybody can do. And another one of my messages, it's every it's something everybody has to do. We all mm -hmm. depend on healthy ecosystems, every one of us, whether you're a tree hugger or not. And that means it's everybody's responsibility to take this seriously. So everybody needs to contribute in some way. It's, their, it's just their, you know, their earthling responsibility as a member of planet Earth. It's something that I always find interesting when talking about the whole, oh, what, what difference can one person make sort of mindset? If everyone has that approach, then sure, one person can't make a difference. But if everyone says, all I can do is what I can control, collective action adds up. So, you know, acting at home, it might not seem like it's making a huge difference globally until you think about every single person who is making a difference at home. That's a, that's a huge difference yeah. overall. And I wouldn't be pushing it as hard as I do if I hadn't seen how successful it was where, where my wife and I live. That's not one person, that's two people. But our, our property was mowed for hay when we moved in. There was very little here. We put the plants back, and I've been counting the number of moth species. And by the way, moths are the, they're the bread and butter of local ecosystems. I'm up to 1,202 species that are now making a living at our house because we put the plants back. And we've got 61 wow. species of birds that have bred here because we put the plants back. So this type of conservation really works. And that, you know, that encourages me to tell other people, hey, you know, you do it. It'll it'll work. Yeah. One of the things that we talked about uh, last spring was the No Mo Mave movement and just seeing how many people are kind of taking up that, even if it's just for a month, helping out pollinators, helping out the local ecosystem by letting wildflowers and native plants bloom you know, little things like that really do make a huge difference in birds, bees, butterflies, all of those animals and insects that we rely on to make sure that our ecosystem at home is thriving. Well, I love the concept of no may in that we as homeowners have to help pollinators. Great concept. But no may isn't going to do it, unfortunately. If yeah. You mow your grass, then you have tall grass and grass doesn't contribute anything to pollinators. And if you had a terrible lawn and it's full of dandelions and clover and, and all kinds of things that do help pollinators. And then in June, you mow it again. You've just cut all the pollinators off at the knees. So yeah, no mow areas where you actually put in the plants that are valuable for pollinators and never mow them. Uh, and everybody can find a place on their property to do that. That would be a real contribution. So in talking about real contributions that the listeners of this show can make, I'm curious how someone, and maybe my example would be a good one. I don't have a, a lawn. I don't have a yard. I live in an apartment building. 
how can someone like me be a better steward of the environment? Three ways. Do you have a balcony? I don't. Let's <laughs> say okay. two ways. Two ways. <laughs> <laughs> well, a lot of people, right, let's just talk about a, a typical apartment dweller does have a balcony. You can do container gardening. Container gardening with uh, the appropriate native plants for your ecoregion. And you can find out what they are by going to uh, our website, homegrownnationalpark.org. And there's a whole section on there about container gardening. Um, and if everybody did that in an apartment complex, um, it would provide a lot of forage for local pollinators. It would provide forage for migrating monarchs. So, you know, it's not as good as somebody who owns uh, real land, mm -hmm. but it is a contribution. Um, you can vote. Your vote does matter when it comes to conservation issues. Uh, so be sure you do that and do that in a responsible way. But you can also volunteer. You can help a park or preserve or a land conservancy, which desperately needs your help. They depend heavily on volunteers. Um, you know, particularly land conservancies, they, they buy up property and they protect it from development, but they don't have the resources to manage it. And today, with all the invasive plants we have around, it has to be managed. So that's another huge way that you can contribute. Got it. So I do want to spend a good portion of this interview talking about your book. And I think the best way to introduce Nature's Best Hope Young Readers Edition is to start with the original Nature's Best Hope. So what was your process in writing that? And what would you hope a listener or a reader rather, what would you hope their takeaway is from the book? Well, the spoiler of the book is that you are nature's best hope. <clears throat> the book is about convincing you that, um, that we do have serious issues and that you as an individual can make an important contribution. Um, and I, you know, I list the ways you can do that. Uh, single individuals can totally revamp the, the ecological integrity of their, their property. Um, so that's basically what, what the book is about. Uh, we went to a young readers version because young readers are the future stewards of the planet and they don't know that. As a matter of fact, if they listen to the typical media, they're gonna be terrified of nature. It's going to give you Zika virus. It's going to, you know, it's going to, a cougar is going to eat you or something terrible is going to happen. They don't ever talk about the, the benefits of, of the natural world. So this is designed to get kids engaged, to get them to fall in love with natural processes. That's required. You're, there's no way they're going to exert energy to protecting their local ecosystems. If they don't know what they are, if they don't know how to protect them, and if they don't recognize they need protection, and if they don't love being out in these systems. So that is, that's the goal. Um, and, and I hope it works. One thing, I'm going to, I'm going to criticize my own book here. They published it with black and white photos. Mm. I think it's a huge mistake because the pictures in these books are what captivate it. They're what bring them in. Nature's beautiful. Yeah. It's not black and white. And and uh, I, I think that was a tactical area. So look past it, go out and find the, the things that those pictures are, are uh, actually of, and you'll see how beautiful nature is. Yeah. I was going to say that might actually, uh, that might actually be to your benefit because somebody might say, wow, this is such a cool picture. I wonder what it looks like in real life and then go try to experience it. <laughs> Maybe. So we've been kind of talking a bit about this homegrown national park movement, and I, I kind of want to get a full view on what the homegrown national park movement is, and if you could talk a bit about your website too. Well, uh, way back in probably 2006, I found a statistic that came out in 2005 talking about the amount of lawn that we have in this country. Back then, it was 40 million acres. Today, it's 44 million acres, and that's an area bigger than all of New England dedicated to lawn. And what is lawn? It's an ecological deadscape, mm. a status symbol. 
Uh, and the way we treat it, the fertilizers and pesticides and insecticides and herbicides, all the things we put on our lawn um, makes it deadly for our, our local watersheds. We use a lot of carbon mowing it every, every week. Um, it, you know, there are four things every landscape has to do. It's got to sequester carbon. Mm-hmm. It's got to manage the watershed. It's got to support pollinators and it's got to support the local food web. Lawn does none of those things. So I saw that statistic and I said, well, what would happen if we cut the area of lawn in half? That'd give us 20 million acres that we could restore to ecological function right at home. I thought, well, how big is 20 million acres? And I started adding up the area of all our major national parks. You're going to add them all up. It's less than 20 million acres. Mm. I said, wow, Homegrown National Park would be the biggest park in the country. So I started talking about it in my talks. And I, in, in uh, 2000, when Nature's Best Hope came out in 2020, I had a chapter dedicated to Nature's Best Hope. I mean, to uh, Homegrown National Park. But that's all I did. Talk. Yeah. Talk is cheap. Mm. <laughs> um and I met a woman who came to my talk. She actually, her neighbor dragged her there. She had just retired from a, a marketing branding uh, career in Manhattan. She didn't know anything about nature. She didn't know anything about conservation or the biodiversity crisis. But she heard this talk and she came up to me afterwards. And she said, "She said, you know, you've got to get this message to the non-choir, to the to the people who don't know anything about it." I said, "Yeah, I know, but that requires social media and all the things I don't do." And she says, well, I do do that. Let's create a, a nonprofit. We'll call it Homegrown National Park. And that will be its dedicated uh, role. Um, so I reluctantly agreed because I knew it was going to add a lot of work to my plate. But, but it's it's worked really well. She created it. She's got this idea of, of registering your property on the map of the U.S. You register. It's free, first of all. So um, anybody can do it where you are, and then the amount of area that you're going to be a good steward of. Maybe you really are going to reduce your lawn. Maybe you're going to plant an oak tree. Maybe you're going to put a flower in a, in a, a container. Whatever you do counts, and then your little piece of your county lights up with a firefly. Fireflies are our emblem. And you get to see who else, I mean, not, not with addresses or names, but who else is engaged in this in your, your county. And the object, of course, is to get... Um, everybody in your county signed up and you get everybody in the country signed up to really get the message that um, everybody is responsible for good birth stewardship because everybody needs it. We want that message to go viral. We've got uh, a situation where the states compete with each other. Each state is color coded and the darker green you are, the more people are participating and they can compete with each other. Um, so it's it's two years old and, you know, boy, the statistics change every day, but there's something like... I don't know, 60,000 members at this point. Um, wow. Object is to is to get as much acreage uh, on the map as possible. We want to get all the people who belong to Audubon and National Wildlife Federation and Wild Ones and Sierra Club, all these people who are already doing good conservation on their properties to sign up on this map so we can see how well we're doing in aggregate. We're not pulling membership away from any, any other organization because we don't charge. Um, but that will give us a, a visual of successful conservation on private property, which is going to be absolutely necessary if we're going to meet this 30 by 30 mm. goal of preserving 30% of the country by 2030. That is not going to happen if we don't count what's happening on private property. Um, so uh, we now have a, a board. We have a, a new executive director. 
so we're a real little nonprofit and it people seem to like it. That sounds awesome. And and I guess a question I have related to that in inspiring young children with the young readers edition version of nature's best hope to, to get involved in the homegrown national parks movement. How do you navigate getting a kid involved who, you know, they don't necessarily have a lawn and their parents might not be as interested. It's a bigger challenge. That's for yeah. sure. Uh, but you know, a container garden is definitely within the, the, you know, the abilities of a child. Um, and on our website, we tell you exactly what plants in your ego region should go in those containers. Um, so just creating a simple container with, with some goldenrod or some Joe pie weed or something else in there, and then watching what comes to it can engage that, that child. There's a lot of kids like that. 82% mm. of us live in cities. So it's a huge part of the population that doesn't have large tracts of, of land. Uh, but you know, all the other land is out there and, and 78% of it is privately owned. 85% east of the Mississippi is privately owned. So it's a huge amount of area that um, that can join Homegrown National Park. And, and uh, there's a lot of kids out there as well. So your school can join Homegrown National Park. All these kids are going to schools. Yeah. So uh, why not? I didn't even think about that. The the elementary school that I went to, I grew up right next to it. Gigantic field in the back that, you know, it's a bunch of baseball fields, soccer field, and then just a lot of grass in between the fields that's kind of just sitting there. And that could be a perfect opportunity for wildflowers or or native vegetation in between the baseball fields. And then that can be a study area. I mean, that can be something that all the classes can engage in in different ways. I don't know if any of my teachers from, uh, oh gosh, what would that have been 20 years ago are still there, but I can, uh, I can reach out. They could be. (laughs) This is probably a a larger question and one that I'm kind of excited to hear your take on and share my experience. I used to do environmental education for the wildlife conservation society at the Bronx zoo up in New York. And whenever people ask me what I liked about the job, uh, obviously number one was the animals and getting to work one-on-one with camels, (laughs) but the second thing was always seeing how inspired young kids, high schoolers were about conservation, you know, like the, that next generation of conservationists. So to you, why would you say young people are important in the fight for biodiversity loss or the fight for, uh, against climate change? Because they are the future stewards of the planet yeah. and they know that. Um, so, yeah, uh, and people say, well, let's just train the kids and everything will be great. We absolutely have to train the kids, and that's what this is all about. But we can't stop there uh, because these are these are urgent issues. Mm-hmm. We cannot wait for the next generation. So I've addressed adults for the last 20 years. Baby boomers are, are tremendously influential because they're retired, they've got money, and they've got time. Mm-hmm. But they're also dying, too. I just went to my, my 50th uh, college reunion. 50 of us are already dead, you know, so... We really can't. We have to engage every age class, uh, and kids are extremely important because how they view nature, the natural world today, is going to influence what they do the rest of their lives. It could open up career paths, um, but it's going to open up a mindset that will send them down the road of uh, valuing the natural world that keeps them alive on this planet, or ignoring it, or not understanding it, and abusing it. Uh, so that's. They've got an entire life ahead of them. It's extremely important that we engage them. 
I'm, I'm going to uh, brag a little bit here. I'm thinking of my seven-year-old niece right now and just how influential and, and impactful kids can be. She just had a, a, a bad experience with someone in one of her classes who wasn't being very kind to the younger kids. And she decided to make a petition for her school at seven years old to have some sort of kindness assembly where the principal would come in and just remind everyone to be kind and, and build each other up. And, you know, if, if a seven-year-old can do something like that, I see no reason why a group of seven-year-olds can't make a huge difference in the at-home environmental movement. Kids can have a tremendous amount of influence on their parents. Yeah. And, and their neighbors, uh, their local park. Yeah, they're a very influential group. So what takeaway would someone who, I, I guess the, the example of this would be someone who reads Nature's Best Hope themselves and then with their child or, or niece, nephew, you know, they read the Young Readers edition with them. What are some major takeaways that you think both readers would get? And, and what are some differences between the two versions? There are surprisingly few differences between the two versions. You know, the first one is definitely written for adults. But I'm, I've always written, uh, I hope, in the language that they can understand. I've been talking to the public for a long time. Uh, they don't like jargon. They don't understand uh any kind of ecological jargon. It's not necessary. So I explain the concepts in uh, as simple a terms as possible. And it's, and it's not very difficult. We don't have to understand logistic growth curves or anything else to, to talk about carrying capacity, to talk about the limits of the earth. Um, so I already talk about it in ways that people with no background can understand. The young reader's version is, is simply translating that into the language of of you know middle schoolers, uh, and uh, the you know the person who did that it wasn't me. It was uh, Sarah Thompson, and uh, I I edited it after she did it, uh, but she's done this for other books as well. But she did not, she didn't dumb it down at all in terms of concepts, uh, and she even included things like population control. And some people have said you're talking to population control of kids. I said yeah yeah, it's the most serious issue on the planet, and you know to pretend that it doesn't exist is is big mistake so we yeah. were general about it but um so uh, so it's 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 uh it is the young readers version but it is not the dumbed down version uh, and i'm i'm hoping that it works i think that's really important too because you know I, I feel like so many kids that i've interacted with with my environmental education background or just family members when they get fixated on something as a kid it becomes that thing that they want to know every single detail about, and they're so excited to share it. So to really give them a, a roadmap for how they can be an environmental steward, how they can make their local ecosystem better, and to not dumb it down, I, I think that's really, really important. And they are a lot smarter than we give them credit for, and they see everything. I was recently in, in Vermont, um, and I gave a talk, and then afterwards, uh, they took me on a hike up Mount Mansfield. Mm. Uh, and... and uh, Actually, it was one of my former students. She had her seven-year-old, I think he's seven-year-old son with him. And we go up to the top of the mountain and she said, uh, she said, what, what do you see? What's different about the trees up here? And he said, they're shorter. You know, <laughs> immediately he recognized that, that there's a, a big difference. And so they're looking around, they're noticing things. And we, we um, I think we do them a disservice when we pretend that they're not very smart. They're very yeah. smart. And in many ways, they're smarter than we are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and giving them that, you know, that room to explore, that room to learn more, that's going to make a student 
who, as they grow up, continues to ask questions and continues to do deep dives into topics instead of feeling like, you know, they understand the basics of it and that's enough. Right, right. All right, Dr. Talmud, that's all the questions that I had. Is there anything about your book that, you know, we haven't really gotten into that you want to tell my listeners? What I always want to emphasize is getting the message across to both young and old readers that um, this is... It's a serious issue. It's an urgent issue. And everybody has a responsibility to addressing it because everybody on the planet requires healthy ecosystems. It's not just a few ecologists and a few conservation biologists. Uh, we've got a very strange setup right now where you've got conservation biology and everybody else has a green light to destroy the planet. Mm. That makes no sense at all. So everybody's a conservation biologist because it's absolutely essential for all of us. These books just just point that out and tell you how you you can do that without without a lot of muss or fuss. So think about your personal responsibility and how you can actually change. You know, we've got an adversarial relationship with nature. We've got to mm -hmm. change it to a collaborative relationship, and everybody can help do that. Absolutely. All right. If people want to keep up with you or your work, where is the best place to do that? HomegrownNationalPark.org. Awesome. We will link that in the show notes. If you're listening now, just swipe up and click that link. Go check it out. We end all of our interviews with three fun rapid fire questions. You ready? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Number one, what is your favorite animal? Oh, that's like asking me what my favorite child is. <laughs> moth. It's some kind of moth, and it's the moth I haven't seen yet. <laughs> Love it. Number two, what is something that you do to be more sustainable in your own life? Keep my lights off at night. That is a good one. And last one. What is one topic you think my listeners should be more aware of after hearing from you today? You know, dive into the biodiversity crisis. We've got a climate change crisis. Everybody hears about that every single day. You rarely hear about the biodiversity crisis. Uh, read E.O. Wilson's works, any of his, his works. Read Half Earth. I mean, that's a good place to start. And he'll tell you why we've got to save nature on half of planet earth or it's going to disappear everywhere got it thank you so much for your time i really appreciate it this was a lot of fun and you know i learned a lot and i, I know the listeners will too well thanks for the opportunity and go blue hens <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and that will do it for today's episode of tpt thank you so much dr talami for your time today this was an awesome episode and i hope that you as a listener enjoyed it as well we're going to be back a week from today, next Friday, with my interview with Martha Hunt Handler of the Wolf Conservation Center. So come check it out. It's another really good one. Go check out our socials at Planet Today Pod for more TPT in the meantime. And for the planet today, I am Matt Norton. See you next week. Mm -hmm.